The following audio content is a talk from Convergence, a service for young adults at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at upc.org forward slash young adults. We, as you know, are going through the Gospel of John. We're looking at these encounters that Jesus has, these situations that Jesus walks into where he, he, he busts expectations, he expands vision. We've called the series Overflowing because there is a sense that there's something bigger that, that pops out um, as Jesus walks into a particular situation. But here's the thing. I know that as we're moving through this, that, that for some of you, you're, you're wondering, not only do I feel like things aren't overflowing, I, I kind of wonder where Jesus is at all, if he's there at all. I mean, it's not a matter of kind of things bubbling up and flowing over and expansive and all this kind of stuff. Like, I just, I just kind of think, is Jesus even, is even in this with me? I had, as I was even preparing, I had a couple of, a couple of uh, emails come through. I had a conversation last week, and maybe, and this is what I mean. And it just, it reminded me kind of of, of where I know a lot of us are at. And one of the conversations was this. A friend of mine who's been looking for a job for about eight months. We were laughing together, kind of painfully so, but laughing together. He's like, you wouldn't believe how many how many runners up I've gotten. How many times I've heard, hey, we really liked you, you're great, but there's someone with just a little more experience. Right? That gets demoralizing after a while. I mean, it's just, there's some of you know what that's like. You've been in that before. I've been in that place before. Some of you know what that's like right now because you're going through it. I have this, got this other, this email that said, hey, you need to check this out. And what I found out is that one of my good friends, a guy that I, a friend from camp that I've known for a long time, loves Jesus like crazy. And yet he got caught up in this whole mess where this company got bankrupt. And, but he, he had actually invested and there's something really dodgy going on with this company. He had invested heavily into it. And as this company went down, his investments just went nowhere and he was hung out to dry. Not only were the investors hung out to dry, but he, actually everybody that, that worked for this company, kind of all the suppliers around them, some of these guys are going out of business now because of some pretty dodgy stuff that had happened within that company. And here my friend is sitting here and he's going, you know, I, this is kind of one of those guaranteed things. I mean, there's, not, you know, there's no investment without risk. But now, basically, my whole life savings up to this point have been cleared out just so that I can keep good credit. Where's Jesus in that? Where's God in that? I get another email. My uncle, he's a pastor. I mean, it was kind of one of those days. You ever have one of those days just like, dude, I couldn't use, I could use a little less bad news. My uncle, he's, he's been a pastor in this community down in LA for a, a long, long time. He's had this house. It's a 130-year-old house. It's a gorgeous house. He's poured everything into it. I mean, he has scraped together he doesn't make a lot of money, but he has scraped together all that he could to, to build this house. And it is gorgeous. And, and he actually dedicated, he said, this house is, this house is for God. This house is, is, to, is to be opened up to this community and the people I serve. Well, he's in church. I mean, he's in church. And he gets a call. You need to head home right away. And his house is on fire. This is Sunday night. His attic is on fire and it's burning. And basically, they were able to save the house only by basically soaking the house to the, just absolutely drenching the two floors. So the part of the house that made it has so much water damage, they're probably going to have to strip it down. They're not going to be in the house for a long time. I mean, where's, where's God in that? I think 
we all have those situations where we begin to go, you know, I, I'd love to believe kind of an overflowing kind of faith, but there are these times where we go, man, where is God in, in, in the midst of this? And I, what we're going to look at tonight speaks right, right into this. The very center of how we're going to see Jesus interact in this situation with the people is going to be a bold statement. That if it's true, that, that if Jesus actually backs up this bold statement, it actually radically affirms life. Radically affirms life and speaks right into the very core. That, and that word radical actually speaks to kind of core, fundamentals of where we are and who, and who we're and the kind of stuff that we deal with. So we're going to look in John chapter 11. Before I do, I just want, I want to pray for us as we get into God's Word this evening. Lord Jesus, I, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that there was a, the same Spirit that inspired this account, that brought together this account of, of Your life here on earth. Lord, it is active and, and alive today. And Lord, I know that we're coming from a lot of places as we walk in here. And some of us are coming into these places where we are actually wondering where the heck You are. Some of us are coming in and, and we've seen your glory and, and, we are, and we're buzzed and we bring all that. Lord, we're thankful because you deserve it, but you're also worthy of taking it. And so we ask is that we, we look at your scripture this evening, that you would meet us where we're at and speak right to the core of who we are, your voice of truth and your voice of grace. Praise pray this in your name. Amen. Well, John chapter 11, a fa- famous story. It, it's, we're going to look at... Uh, kind of a, a large section of this. And so, uh, if you don't have your Bibles, you just kind of listen along. And sometimes that's good, because actually, a lot of the early letters and even the books, they were meant for, for listening. And so just listen and, and kind of imagine what is going on. Well, Jesus, this is a couple chapters later than what we've looked at before. And Jesus has basically got into all kinds of trouble with the authorities in Jerusalem. And, and, he's, and he's out away from town when he gets this word. The one you love is sick. Lazarus who's part of this family of Mary and Martha that you love, he, he's really sick, Lord. And he, he has this kind of discussion, and for whatever reason, he actually waits a few days before, before he leaves. And, and maybe part of what's going on is that he gets anywhere near Jerusalem, and people are out for his head. He has this discussion with the disciples, and finally, finally he heads off. And we pick it up in, in, chat, in verse 17. He starts to approach this place called Bethany where Lazarus is staying. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the very last day. Well, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And he or she who believes in me, even though he or she dies, whoever uh, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Well, after, after this encounter, Jesus goes on and, and, he, and he runs into to Mary. And Mary hears that he's coming because Mary had stayed back behind. Mary's, Martha's kind of the bold one. Mary's uh, a, more kind of, of the sensitive one. She, she always, there's a sense of 
Martha's really that kind of that doer, and so she's out there, she's bold. Well, Mary hears that Jesus has arrived. She runs out to meet him. When Mary reached the tomb, and this is verse 30, verse 32, when Mary reached the tomb, reached, or excuse me, reached the place where, G, where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You pick out a similar question for both of them. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? What the very center of this account is this this bold, and for many of us, crazy assertion that I am the resurrection and the life. That he who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. What Jesus is doing in in this statement is, radically, at its fundamental, affirming life. He, He does it really in two ways in this account. First is that Jesus fundamentally identifies with both of our our grief and our anger. Let me notice three things as we're going through this passage. First thing is this, that that question that came from both Mary and Martha, if only, if only you had been here. And there's almost a sense of of accusation, isn't there? If only you had been here, you know, my brother wouldn't have died. What are you doing? What's the story? You wonder, both of them were coming with questions of regret, of tragedy. Questions that don't necessarily do anything, but still they they have them. What what I love is that, you see, before Jesus really does anything, He simply is able to kind of take the questions. Take them as they are. He responds, but He responds to Martha's comment of faith. When Martha said, you know, I know that God, even now, will give you whatever you ask. And then they get to this interaction of, your brother's going to rise again. And yet, the thing I love, even with Martha or Mary coming later and going, Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would have died. Jesus doesn't snap back at her. There isn't this. There isn't this sense that, you know, what are you talking about? Come on, I'm the one in charge. I'm the Messiah. You know, I'm going to perform a miracle. What's your What's your problem? He doesn't snap back at them for not having the right answers. He just lets it. He just lets it be. He's able to take their questions. Well, then the second thing is the shortest verse in the Bible, right? I mean, this is. This is any Sunday school kid's dream if they have to kind of memorize scripture, right? Jesus wept. Awesome. Jesus wept. Okay, got it. Check it off. Start on the chart. Wouldn't it be great, though, instead of just memorizing it, if we actually meditated on that? I mean, it strikes you because it's so short. Jesus wept. Simple. Straightforward. You know what it's like with when you have maybe faced a tragedy. Your, your friends or your family have faced a tragedy. And there might be all kinds of things you could say, all kinds of good things, all kinds of true things, all kinds of kind of right things, hopeful things. And yet, there is no word that can actually do any good in that moment. The best thing that we can do is to simply weep. I mean, to speak is almost to kind of tread into a sacred moment. 
And you see, Jesus, He's got all kinds of things to say. He's got lots of things to say. He's got lots of things to do. And yet there's a, a moment when He sees what has happened. He sees the devastation. He simply breaks down and weeps. There, in moments of great loss that we've all had, we, we feel stripped down. And while we don't want trite words, we want to know, are we in this alone? And, and for the most part, we feel like we are in this completely alone. That our world is crashing in. And, and what we could start to ask is, does anyone really care whatsoever? Notice the third thing. That not only does Jesus weep, but we read that He was deeply moved and troubled. Deeply moved and troubled. Well, this is one of those. This is one of those verses where it's good to actually kind of hit a, a number of different versions, or so you can get a sense of kind of what's going on deeper. Because deeply moved and troubled, I don't know what that means. Deeply moved and troubled, you're like, he's bugged. I don't know what. What's going on? And some some people would even could even kind of say, well, you know, why he's troubled is they don't really believe. There they are weeping. They don't really believe. Come on, what's the story? He's mad at that. Deeply moved and troubled. The message says this, When Jesus saw her sobbing, the Jews with her sobbing, a deep anger welled up within him. He says that he's deeply moved. A better word that you can find in some other versions is indignation. Indignation is this, this idea of a strong feeling that, that, that comes up, that wells up when we start confronting something that is unjust, insulting, that is offensive. The idea behind that word trouble is that sense that my soul is thrown into a turbulence. You can't just sort of sit back because you're, you're riled up, you're stirred up. It actually, there's a sense to this word of motion. It's like, you know, if you're kind of just mellow, you can sort of be there. But you, you get riled up and so it sends you into action. Jesus is pissed. I thought about whether I was actually going to use that or not. But it's appropriate. I, I don't want to be crass, but there's a sense he is angry. He looks at the devastation of, of what happens, and he cannot stand aloof. He cannot stand back uncaring. He can't be unfeeling. He has to. There's something that he has to do something. Earl gives a great example. We it was great to have um, former senior pastor Earl here, and he would do Q and A, and, he, and people would kind of throw kind of their theological questions at him. And one of them always is, is you know kind of God's will and sort of the, the brokenness in the world that we've seen. And he tells a story. Right? Some of you will remember this story. He tells a story of, of being kind of at this round, kind of theological sort of round table, a couple different faith traditions there. And, and someone says, you know, was 9-11, these terrorists flying planes into the towers, killing thousands of people, was that God's will? Well, sometimes what we want to do is we want to protect kind of God's sovereignty. And sovereignty is really kind of His authority that He's got things in control. We want to make sure that we don't say that God, there's stuff outside of God's control. And yet what Earl will say is God is at the beginning and He is at the end. Evil is bounded. And yet for a time, mysteriously, He allows us agency. He allows us to be able to act in this world. And because of that, because of that, there are things that go wrong. And yet, his very clear response to that question is, no, that was not the will of God. It was against God's will, and it made him angry. See, God cannot stand uncaring, aloof, disconnected. Every act of hatred, violence, death, 
injustice, terrorism, desperation does not go unnoticed. Jesus doesn't kind of look at it, kind of removed, going, ah, that's human. That's really, that's a lack of faith. There is a sense that Jesus not only weeps, but is full of of this deep anger to do something about it. And I, I, I love this about Jesus. I love that Jesus gets angry. I mean, if you think about it, don't you? I mean, if Jesus were kind of this kind of mamsy pamsy guy, sort of floating through things, kind of kind of dropping little kind of little little scriptures here and there, sort of not really bothered by the stuff of life. I mean, would would love actually mean anything? It wouldn't. I mean, the opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is apathy. We kind of simply stand back and you shrug and you go, "Eh, it is the way it is. It is what it is." And yet, how can there be any real love when you look on some of the stuff that we look on in this wider world or even closer to home and not feel a sense of anger? Not feel a sense of turbulence? See, the result of when they show up is that people looked on Jesus. They didn't look on Jesus and they didn't think, man, that guy's smart. That guy's got good things to say. They looked on him and they said, or even that guy's powerful. They looked on him and they said, See how he loved it. See, look how much he loved this family. But Jesus had done nothing at this point, nothing but totally identify himself with this family in such a way that everybody that looked on him could only conclude, man, Jesus loves this Lazarus and this family. Well, see, some of us I know when we, we approach God, what we need to do is we need to start asking, what is it that we really believe that God cares about? Because my sense is that for some of us, even if we've been Christians for a while, we, we would say that we've been followers of Jesus for a while, there's a sense where we, what we really think about God is that He really kind of just shrugs His shoulders sort of in apathy. I know there's people that, that you work with that think that you know God really doesn't care about what happens in this world. If He cares about anything, it's just that you, you kind of believe the right thing and get into heaven there someday, that really it's about what you kind of say and do, but he really doesn't care about right now. It's no wonder that we wonder that Christian faith feels uninteresting, feels powerless, seems totally unappealing to those outside of us, and maybe if we're really honest to us. So Jesus can take our questions. Jesus weeps with us. Jesus gets angry with us. And that is the truth that we have to affirm for our own lives and for those around us. When we realize this, we we can get unparalyzed as well in in how we interact with those around us. When we see tragedy and we just don't know what to do and we just don't know what to say, and we can take a cue from Jesus here and maybe it's to say nothing. But simply to, to let the person know that that, that you're not gonna you're not gonna remove yourself. I mean, we're, we're so scared of death in our society. We're not gonna remove ourselves from that, but we're actually gonna say, "I'll be in there with you. Let me help. Let me understand what's going on. I'm not gonna totally get it, but I'm gonna be angry with you on the things that that are, you should be rightfully angry. I'm gonna let you throw out all kinds of questions at me, and I'm not gonna feel like I have to answer them because they're unanswerable. A lot of them. I'm not gonna get defensive. I'm not gonna have to try to defend God. He's gonna let you. You throw the throw your questions at me. I'm going to weep with you. And it's only when we come into that place that, that we're going to then have any sense of what it means to, 
to speak hope or, or to do hope into people's lives. Well, the second op- observation is this, that Jesus radically affirms life because He not only identifies with us, but He also brings restoration out of destruction. Pick up in verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away that stone. And by the way, deeply moved. It's that same word, just filled with this deep anger. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for it has been four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So that they took away the stone, and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of those standing here, that they may believe you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, and his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to him, take off the grave clothes and let him go. See, here's what some of you, I know you're thinking. You're thinking, resurrection, right? I mean, what the heck is resurrection? I mean, really, it's something that we, we have this hard time of getting our, our, our heads around, even if we have been within the church for a long time. Resurrection, it really basically, and this doesn't help us a lot more, but basically it's this idea of being brought back to life after life has ended. It's a sense of not just a soul kind of or a spirit going to heaven. It's a sense of bodily coming back to life again. It's the whole person being reanimated. And a lot of times what we think about with resurrection, we think about, okay, at the end, at the end of all things, there'll be kind of a heaven, there'll be life after this life. And we, we get this from Martha. When Jesus says, your brother will rise again, Martha said, I, I know he'll rise again at the last day. Right? At the last day, someday. Right will be separated from wrong. Justice will reign. Death will be no more. Beauty will shine. All will thrive. Peace is going to dominate. Yeah, I know that that's going to happen someday. But how do we get our heads around this idea of resurrection? I feel like we, we talk about it a lot in the church and we talk about it around memorial services, but, but what do we do with it? I mean, I think we have a hard time because, rightly so, what we're used to is putting our weight down on things that we can demonstrate time and time again. We can, we can reproduce it in a laboratory, and if, if that's true, then, it, then it's got to be true. Well, yes, and, and that's, that's good. And the sciences absolutely are good, and they teach us a lot of things, and yet there's, there's dynamics, there's truth in the world that goes beyond simply what can get kind of squeezed down into a laboratory and reproduced. There are these moments in history. We start looking at history, and a lot of what we're talking about is more, we're talking about a a document that is at least a historical document. That in history, there is these moments that are absolutely unique, that happen rarely, if only once, and yet they they change history. See, history is made up of these moments, not, not, not the everyday stuff, right? Not the mundane stuff that happens time and time again, right? I mean, can you imagine some book being written? Well, John Epps followed him around, 6.30 a.m., got up, made a pot of coffee. Tuesday, 6.30 a.m., got up, made a pot of coffee. Wednesday, 6.30 a.m., got up, made a pot Who cares, right? Nobody cares. I mean, nobody cares about the mundane stuff of our life. It's not, it's not significant. I mean, all you can, you can deduce, let me deduce from that. What I can deduce from that is that John likes coffee, and maybe he's even a little bit addicted, but that's another, that's another night. 
right? It's these unique moments that, that change history. That, that's what history is full of. I just finished reading 1776, a book by David McCullough on, uh, on that, this pivotal year in our nation's history where he follows George Washington around. And it's, it's amazing, you guys. The, how we ever survived, I don't know. I mean, seriously, we took on the world power with just an absolute gong show of an army. These guys that had nothing more really than just a tenacity. I mean, we, weren't, we didn't have enough weapons. We didn't, ha- we didn't have enough cannons. We didn't have enough guns. We didn't even have enough coats. We didn't even have enough shoes. I mean, there are guys that were, tra- that were going around in the snow. I mean, you could tell where the American army had been because you could see the footprints, but also trail of blood. Not because people were bleeding from wounds, but because they were walking around barefoot in the snow. And that's how they were fighting this war against the best equipped army in the world at that time. And yet there is this, this sense that there was this turn, and it, it almost went bad time and time again. And yet somehow there was this unique moment where history turned, and it changed the course of our lives today, and the course of the world. See, we come and we can believe a lot of things about Jesus. Okay, we can believe he's a great teacher. We can, and we have, we all have to kind of deduce that and kind of believe that out of out of out of literature, out of history books. We can believe he's a good teacher, good person. He was, we can, he was a Jew. We can say he's a compassionate, compassionate man. And yet, the one thing that is absolutely essential to Christian belief is this almost crazy thing called the resurrection. That somehow, after being brutally killed, laid in a tomb, he was brought to life, bodily life. But somehow a life that, that actually went beyond this life. I mean, he, he interacted, you could touch him, he, he ate and drank, and yet there was, there was this sense of, of, of a body that was even better than what we knew. You could get the sense that the gospel writers are trying to grasp, they don't quite understand how to, to describe it. And yet it is this very place, there is a sense that, that in this idea of resurrection, there is a sign that something new is beginning, that there is, there is a victory that happened in the very place where death and destruction seemed to totally reign. It was key to Peter, Peter's first speech in Acts chapter 2. I mean, it wasn't just that he was a good teacher, it was that he actually rose again, and that's where his authority was on. I mean, you could explain all, all kinds of reasons for the rise of the early church. And if you're interested in following up on this, I encourage you to look up N.T. Wright and, and Surprised by Hope is a new book he has out on that. I haven't read it all, but I skimmed it. And I, he, he writes really well if you want to go deep on this and understand some of the historical things that were going on. But you have to come up with all kinds of reasons. Why is it the early church exploded after the death of this Messiah? I mean, you could say, well... They all really wanted this Messiah, and so they were all deluding themselves. Well, that doesn't hold up real well, especially because no one was expecting that the Messiah would ever suffer, let alone die. I mean, there had been lots of people that had come up now and then. They said, hey, I'm the Messiah. Everybody follow me. I'm going to lead us to glory. And then they get killed, and then everything dies out. I mean, again and again and again you see this. And no one would have ever expected it. They go... Messiah, one thing we know about the Messiah is that he is not going to get killed. And so, why, why are they suddenly claiming this Messiah that had been put on a cross? Maybe it was other, other religions, maybe this idea of resurrection, you know, you could say, well, it's, it came from other religions. Yeah, there were, there were gods, kind of agricultural gods, that you could say, kind of 
rose and fell depending on the seasons, but never, never was there ever seen a human. Or people say, well, Jesus kind of hobbled out. You know, he didn't, after getting whipped 40 times, crown put on his, you know, hung, stabbed in the side, he actually was fine. He recovered. Right? I mean, it's, it's one of those things that, that come up. You, you could say, well, I guess, you know, there, there could be reasons for the church. And yet, why is it that even if we say that, that Jesus kind of hobbled out into the desert and sort of licked his wounds, that suddenly there was this explosion of the church right away? And not only that, they, they held on that Jesus was this king, this victorious king, and they would hold on to it regardless of becoming public uh, enemy number one of Rome, regardless of becoming incredibly unpopular and even hated, regardless of being dressed up in furs and fed to animals, regardless of being uh, killed for sport in circuses, re- regardless of being put on the top of poles and lit up as torches, for Nero's garden parties. But instead, they held on and said, no, there is a risen king and we follow him and him only. And instead of even rebelling, what they ended up doing is they ended up taking care of Romans and, and, and kind of the wider Greek world. They started taking care of everybody that, that basically society was throwing aside. The resurrection has something to do not just with someday, but with, with this day. That there was this bigger victory that happened than Jesus coming in and slaughtering all the Romans, getting rid of everyone that we, we, we call enemies. That there was this victory over the one thing that seems to be totally unstoppable for everybody, and it's, it's death. There is this sense as if kind of what we thought for someday actually started happening today. Someday actually was happening in this moment. Four days long enough for Lazarus to start stinking, long enough for everyone to assume in that culture that he was dead, dead, dead. Jesus lets the full kind of weight come down. And yet he says, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. Take the grave clothes off him and let him go. See, what's going on with Jesus' resurrection and what we see here is a sign that something new has happened. A new dynamic has popped into our lives. Something new that cannot be stopped. Yes, that one day all things will be put right. Yes, that God is at the end of things. But also that God is at work in the middle of things. And if, as basic Christian belief states is true, that He has demonstrated this ultimate power over death, there is something that He certainly wants to, us to experience right now in the stuff that we face. If He can beat that, He can certainly bring about something new where we are at. That He wants us to to somehow experience what what the new thing is in the future. He wants us to begin to experience that right now, in in the middle of the mess, in the middle of where everything seems to be dark. See, to Martha and to us, He says... Look, I'm, I, I, I'm with you. I'm going to identify, but I also am going to do something about it. Not someday, but right now. I am the resurrection and the life. I am doing a new thing in the midst of the very worst that you are experiencing. I am bringing new from old, and what I want you to be a part of and living of is not just kind of what is, but what will be. And to our questions of whether there's anything besides my own talents or failure beyond the the systems and the governments and the forces that seem to dictate my life, Jesus says, yeah, there is 
more. I want you to experience it. I want you to give witness to it. I'm in. I haven't abandoned you because your house is on fire. I'm with you in this job search, even though you feel like everything is caving in on you. I am with you in this financial disaster, even though everything that you could have rightly kind of depended on and looked forward to your retirement has been taken away from you. I want you to be. I want you also to be radically different. I want you to be what a skeptical world is looking for. A world that, that sees all the glitz and the glamour and the power, and yet beneath the surface there's isolation and meaninglessness and loneliness and despair and brokenness and boredom. What I want to do is I want to move you from simply what is. I want you to be a, a new generation that moves from what is to what will be. A generation that has an imagination that goes beyond simply what is handed to us, simply by what we can see, who can move forward with an imagination to bring about the new thing that God is doing right in the midst of us. Now here's the deal. I know that some of you guys are thinking, alright, yeah, that sounds nice, but everything all I, I can't see anything at this point. And you can say all you want, and yet all I can really see is darkness. All I can see is that things are broken and that things are going awry. I guess the question for us is to say, what is it that we're looking at? When I was in the midst of one of those times, I maybe I've shared this before, it's been a while anyways, I... I made this up, and it, and it has kind of a verse for me and, and some pictures for me. And what it did is, I put it on my desk, and, and what it did is it, it was a symbol to remind me each day, when I felt like all I had was just today, that's all I could think about. I couldn't think, I couldn't even think two days down the, the road. Just today, let me remind me to, to not look around and, and see kind of the, the dark stuff, the, the, the stuff that says that, man, I'm alone, I'm a failure. I can't make it. All, all the stuff that, that kind of breaks in on us. Let, let me live according to God that is at work, right in the middle of stuff. It, it doesn't mean that, it's, that it suddenly gets easy, but He's actually at work. God's kingdom is at work all around me. Something that, for me to, to remind me to live into that each day. To live with imagination each day instead of the sense of being dominated. Well, we also do that simply by coming to worship. That's what we do here. We come and we we come around and we get a sense of we're worshiping a God who not just did something, not taught a bunch of stuff a long time ago, good stuff, not was a, a good person, was a good model, even though I could never be like that. But we come to worship a God who actually faced death, was brutalized, and rose again and opens up a brand new way for us. That is what we do when we come every time to worship. We come as a, this new community, this seed community of the new thing that God is doing. Not someday, but today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I I know that for some of us, um, we do feel as if we can't see much. And we're not really sure where, where the heck you're at or if, if you even care. 
And to that extent, to the extent that that is true, Lord, I, I, I ask that, that tonight, perhaps, you even just affirm to us that you actually weep with us. Lord, that we don't have to hide the questions that are, that are in our hearts and our minds, but you, we can give you everything. We can be honest and you weep with us. You, you're angry with us. You, you do actually give a rip. But Lord, I also pray that you begin to open our eyes. For those of us who feel totally paralyzed and totally stuck, Lord, to the new thing that you want to do, to the way that that the power of your resurrection, your your kingdom at work here in this world, Lord, can begin to lead forward. And out of the very place of death and destruction, Lord, you want to bring something new that points to, to a kingdom, to a king. It is above what we see in this world. It goes beyond simply the the back and forth of violence and domination. Lord, for those of us that feel that way, Lord, I pray that you, You open our eyes, that we follow a King who is risen and is alive and is calling us now. Lord, will You fire our imaginations and lift our hearts in hope? Lord, show us how we can give witness to that. Not to what we do, but to what you are doing. To a world around us that is that is longing to see something more than just stuff to sign off on, but is longing to see lives that are transformed beyond what simply is. Lord, will you use us to be that generation that you use in your name? Amen.